Okay, we should be live. Um, I'll, obviously, I require some kind of confirmation. Someone needs to collapse the wave function to let us know that we actually <laughs> exist and not just uh, bolts and brains floating in space. Um, hey, everyone. Welcome to uh, the weekly guest interview here on Open Space on my YouTube channel. Uh, this week, I've got, uh, is it Professor Peter Voigt? Dr. Peter, would you have a preference? Um, I, I have a kind of a strange academic um, status, which is that my t official title is senior lecturer. Yeah. So I, I'm not actually a tenured professor, but I, I am a faculty member at Columbia University and uh, I'm not, not tenured, but of a more or less permanent sort. And it's a long <laughs> story, but uh, right. I've, anyway, I, anyway, so you could see senior I, lecturer. I don't know what call me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so for people who don't know who you are um, and and what you do. Can you just give us a, an introduction? Okay, so my original background was actually in, um, in, in in physics. And actually, I first got interested in science actually through astronomy. So when I was a kid, I was very interested in astronomy. I had a big telescope and all that. And then, um, but then I got more interested when I was learning about how stars worked, I got more interested in um, the physics of it. You know, why are there these physical laws that govern how what's going on inside a star? And so I ended up studying um, physics well, I went to Harvard as an undergraduate. I, I did a physics major there, and then Princeton as a graduate student, and I got my PhD there in um, theoretical particle physics. But the whole time, I was actually also very interested in mathematics and learning a lot of mathematics at the same time. And I was interested in um, kind of you know ideas about applying more sophisticated mathematics to physics. And then um, I was a postdoc at Stony Brook after Princeton for a while, and then that was when the um, the whole kind of string theory thing started kind of, kind of 1984 while I was at Stony Brook. And by the time my time was up at Stony Brook, it was pretty clear if I wanted to stay in physics, you really, uh, you know, there, traditionally there aren't very many jobs in that field. And the very few jobs there were, were really going to a string theorist, especially if you were interested in math. So I decided, I ended up uh, deciding it'd be better to try to um, get a job in a math department. I ended up getting a postdoc. I ended up teaching calculus one year at Tufts and then getting a postdoc at at Berkeley and at the Math Institute there, and then ended up at Columbia um, over 30 years ago, and I've been here been here ever since. And um, so my interest remains really in the um, you know the part of particle physics and kind of how to approach it through in, 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 and see if we can find some new ideas about it mathematically. And so one thing that I did that got a bunch of attention was about almost almost 20 years ago now I started writing a book that was called ended up being called not, not even wrong yep. it's about the state of um, particle theory and particle physics at the time and which which I actually think it has held up very very well <laughs> yeah. if I do say to myself uh, considering, considering what's happened over the last 20 years and then um, more recently I've been every few years I've been teaching a class on uh, quantum mechanics for mathematicians and I ended up writing a, a textbook about that and this semester, I'm doing the same thing. I'm teaching this class. So this is, I'm here late, later, four o'clock later today, I'll be teaching on this Blackboard to the students uh, remotely. I've actually having, I'm also having a version of lectures for that course are now on, on YouTube if people really want to want to follow them. And, um, and, 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 oh, and I, I also very recently, last year or so, I've finally something, you know, after many, many years of, of trying to do very kind of ambitious things, ideas about some new math for physics, um, and finding that the more and more I worked on some idea, I, more and more clear, clear it became it was a bad idea. The, uh, I finally found one that actually seems to be working very well. So I'm very, very excited. There's got to be something wrong with it then. 
well, so, so far so good. And uh, so it's an idea about, um, anyway, okay, okay. And, I would find <laughs> a better idea, not better to not get started on that, but it, it's an idea. Part of it involves some ideas that were due to Roger Penrose about twisters, about a, a different kind of geometry for thinking about space and time. So mm -hmm. part of it involves that. Part of it involves the idea that you really, um, some in, some idea, ideas about time. There's kind of a technical thing about time in, the, in our theories about how you treat time. Sometimes it's a good idea to, to make time a complex variable and then look at imaginary time and then all of the um, your equations all of a sudden behave much better and so i'm that's related to what i'm right. pursuing so maybe that's the outline yeah well i mean i think you i mean you came across my radar back in i think it was 2006 i think was when you first wrote the when the first published book. book was published yeah yeah not even wrong and and it was interesting because at the time string theory was was all the rage and had been all the rage for already 20 years at this point as you said you know back into the 80s and and 90s and yet it clearly wasn't being productive like from a from a answer the deep you know for combining the the fundamental forces of the universe there were definitely some really interesting mathematical strides that were going on. So before we kind of dump on string theory, um, have there been some benefits to it? Um, well, I mean, there's 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 certainly some very interesting things in mathematics have come out of it. Um, the and and this was actually true from the beginning. And I think one thing that seduced a lot of people um, early on was some of the mathematics that was getting used and the mathematical ideas. And um, I think it's, it also is what made it kind of uh, impossible to kind of work on mathematics and physics and not work on string theory, because that was where all the attention was going. Um, the, 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 my, the problem always about that, though, from the beginning was that the, um, the, the ideas that were showing up in string theory that were really kind of beautiful mathematically and, and let, were leading in interesting mathematical directions, they always were kind of orthogonal. They were always headed in an opposite direction to the ideas about making contact with the physics. The more you tried to make the theory look like physics and agree with some, you know, with, with something we see, you know, the, the uglier you had to make it, the more you, the right. more you try to pursue something beautiful, you, the more it, it stopped looking like physics. So, um, you know, I think, you know, a, a lot of really interesting math has come out of it. Some other physics has come out of it, but, it, but I, I think pretty much all of that has been kind of, you know, when people have gone in a different direction than in the, um, you know, than in the direction of trying to make contact with particle physics and reality. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm just a journalist. And my sort of, what I kind of hear is that, that the math that's been used to develop it has been helpful in helping to untangle other fairly interesting physical problems. But as you say, kind of orthogonal, not directly connected to the original problem, and it doesn't help to to answer the the underlying question that's being that they're really seeking here. And so, um, and so then you wonder: Does all of that time and all that mind power that's been spent to develop this interesting mathematics does it could it have been better spent with other investments in in directions and and mathematics and and so on? Um, so do you still stand by sort of your position of 13 years ago that that oh, it's uh, oh yes i mean I, I think the only thing 
I mean, a, a lot of the point of view of, of the of the book was really that you know the field is really kind of a, a, um, a victim of its own um, success. That the you know we have this incredibly good standard thing, the standard model, and, and it just it agrees with all the experiments pretty much, and um, so people don't know where, where to turn. And that the a lot of the interest in string theory was kind of an an, an artifact of, of you know people you know not being able to make 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 progress on. Yeah, yeah. Not something more promising because the, you know, there, there just wasn't the kind of experimental anomalies to pursue. There wasn't the right. Uh, wasn't much place to look. And the at the time that I wrote the book, that was before the LHC, and so the one th part of the standard model that still hadn't been tested at that point was the was the the, Higgs, the existence of the Higgs particle in a Higgs field. And so the um, the fact that the LHC found a Higgs particle with more or less exactly the properties expected. That actually, I think, you know, just has in some sense made the situation worse in terms of a victim of its own success. I think, you know, I, I myself, a lot of people were hoping that the LHC would find, would not find the Higgs, that it would find something, that there was some other different kind right. of mechanism causing this uh, thing to happen. And that, um, and then that would give us a clue as to where to go. But that didn't happen. <laughs> right. And, and a lot of the the speculative ideas motivated somewhat by, by string theory about the about supersymmetry, that there would be these exotic superpartner particles found, and there was a lot of um, claims that these things would be seen at the LHC, and, and, and none of that has appeared. So, um, so there's been kind of a, a twofold, I think, intensification of uh, the evidence for the problem that I was trying to uh, point out and point out there as, as the main source of where, the problem of where we are now. I mean, it's almost the worst possible outcome which is is that you got this situation where there was this final particle to bolt into the entire standard model of physics. The LHC was designed not only to find that particle, but also to help push physics to whatever is the next step, because clearly you still can't put gravity and, and quantum mechanics together. So there's got to be more. And the LHC, the hope was not just find the Higgs, Higgs particle, which I think had been hinted at by other particle accelerators at this point. Well, I mean, the evidence for up to that point was, was very indirect. Right. Really, yeah, yeah. So it's, um, yeah, I mean, yeah and, and we knew on theoretical grounds that, you know, something had to be causing a certain thing to happen in the theory. And the simplest way to do it was to introduce this Higgs field. And, uh, and you know, some very, some very indirect measurements were consistent with that being what's going on. But that, that was all we had. You could, you could reasonably hope that, um, you know, that they're, you're missing something and that there was a, a different, more interesting way to make this happen. But does it, I mean, if there is, you can't see it at the LHC energy yet, maybe at higher energy. So where do we go now? And I think this is, I'm, you know, again, as a journalist, you know, I depend on on you and Sabina Hassefelder and, and all of these various physicists for some kind of analysis of where everything is going. And it does feel like there's a bit of a schism. On the one hand, you've got some people planning whatever comes next after the Large Hadron Collider, some super collider, but without any specific goal in mind, just start smashing things at higher and higher energies to see what you get. Hopefully something will crack and that will give you a hint at what's, what's the right path to go. And the other strategy seems to be to just go back, probe the edges to find 
what is a more useful direction to go before laying down the billions of dollars to build that next mega science experiment? What do you think is the right course of action now? Well, I think it's a very, very difficult situation. So where we are now is that the, I mean, so the LHC has been uh, has, has been turned off for a while, partly because of COVID, partly because they're doing some some upgrades and improvements, and, and they're going to be doing some more over the next few years. And it's probably got, you know, another 15 years or so before, during, during which, you know, they'll accumulate, you know, quite a bit more data, 10 to 100 times more data, and, and you'll be able to look at things a lot more carefully. Um, so that's kind of a healthy endeavor for the next 15 years or so. But But there comes a time in which, you know, you just, there is no way to kind of dramatically, significantly increase the amount of debt, the, the data rate this thing can do. And, and, and you running it extra years just doesn't give you anything, mm-hmm. only marginal use. And, and at that point, you know, I think the hope, what people are, are in this business or do this, we're hoping is that, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll come up with some new machine or some new, new idea for, for what to start building that would take take over 15, 20 years from now. But the um, the problem has always been, and, and I actually wrote about this also, this is one thing I even wrote about in the um, in the book, is that the there's these really fundamental technological limits on, on our on, on these accelerators. And they're um, they're just very fundamental things that if you um, you know how high you can go in energy with a circular collider with protons just depends upon how strong a magnetic field you can you can build. And um, and then you have to you know, you have to build these magnets and, and they have to be able to operate, you know, very, very reliably. And you have to be able to, to build miles and miles of these things and be able to afford to pay for them. And, and the, the techno, in the, the, but the state of technology is just that I think now the, the best magnets people have of that kind, similar to the ones in the LHC are about, um, are about twice the, maybe roughly twice the magnetic field. So, what you could do, I mean, this, the ch- simplest thing to do would be to just take all the magnets out of the LHC and put in right. new magnets, and you would get, then you would get an extra factor of two in energy. But this would be very expensive. These magnets are very, very expensive. You know, paying for miles and miles and miles of new magnets is billions of dollars, and so that's, in essence, kind of the fight that's going on. Is you know, is it really worth? Is it really worth it? I guess. Mm-hmm. In my mind, I mean, I find these arguments a little bit frustrating because they, it, it, it seems to me that this, I kind of, I think here, I think I disagree with, with Sabina because to me, the a crucial thing is actually, you know, what's, what is the cost of these things? Is there a viable way to actually find that cost? And will that, can that be done without damage to, to, to other things? And uh, we still don't, um, that, that's still very, very unclear. Mm-hmm. What CERN has been talking about you know, all they've really done is said, you know, the best thing in the future would be to build this very expensive new accelerator, but we don't actually have the money for it. And so we're going to keep studying it. I mean, that's really all they've said at this point. Right, and, right. So that, and so, so that when, but I mean, I guess there's two parts to it, right? There is the, there is the accelerator, the ability to speed up particles. And then there are the instruments that are, that are looking to detect the outcome of the collisions and, yeah. and. I mean, I can't think of why you wouldn't like in every scenario, you're going to need an accelerator and then what experiments you bolt onto the accelerator can be flexible as the theories evolve. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, these, well, these, these, 
these these detectors that people build for this. I mean, they're you know that's also very long. There's a very sophisticated things. They've been doing this for a long, long time, and um, and they're they're just there's some to some degree they're tuned a little bit to what they're looking for. Like you know they were, you know some of their design is based upon you know trying to they know that okay we're looking for a Higgs particle and it has going to have roughly these properties. So our detector should have, have these things, but but they're they're also very much also designed as kind of fairly general purpose instruments. I mean, the idea really is that, you know, when we, if you build a new accelerator, it's got 10 times the energy, you can all of a sudden kind of see things of one tenth the size. And, you know, so, and, and you build a, a very general purpose detector to just kind of, in some sense, see everything that, that, that's coming out of there. Um, I don't think, you know, I, I haven't heard of any kind of viable ideas for, you know, a, a different kind of experimental apparatus. Mm. I mean, what what people are would, would like to would, would like to do is to try to find some way to not actually need, you know, to produce these very very high energy energy beams. To find some kind of some kind of way of studying physics and studying physics at these shorter distance scales, you know, without using these high energy collisions. But but it's very the only ideas about this again that they're, they're very very their ideas for getting very, very indirect information, which is then, you know, even if you learn something new, it's going to be very hard to interpret what it really means. So, so uh, it, people really are there. It's a very tough position and there's kind of no easy way around. Right. It. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think about other mega experiments, but they're on the observational side. So I think about things like, say, the ice cube experiment in Antarctica, where they're going to be it's a kilometer of ice today, they're, they're planning to make a version of it that will be 10 kilometers and be a lot more sensitive to detect neutrinos. And you can imagine continuing to scale up that experiment bigger and bigger. And essentially, because you know, those more sensitive neutrinos are out there, the, yeah. the more you make ice cube more, you know, able to detect them, the more interesting things that you you're guaranteed to find, you're just going to start detecting supernova, you can start detecting neutrinos from other stars, maybe you're going to get to the cosmic background neutrino. Um, I don't know what the term for that is background, I guess. Um, yeah. And then and then another example of that would be something like say these gravitational wave detectors. I mean, you had LIGO, and then you had advanced LIGO and advanced LIGO <clears throat> is turning up a gravitational wave a week. And yeah. and then you look at some of the bigger versions, and maybe they're going to start detecting then, you know, it's possible within our capability to essentially detect every black hole collision within the observable universe, you big the build the Big Bang observer, and now you're able to go after the primordial gravitational waves of the Big Bang, like, 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 it seems like, while with the Hadron Collider and with the uh, ultimate versions of that, you're the one having to produce the particles, as opposed to just listening to what the universe is producing. So is it time to focus more on detectors and and telescopes than attempting to generate them ourselves? Well, I think it, the thing is, it, it's just getting at very different physics. The problem is, and the, um, you know, I think, I mean, the things you mentioned are, you know, are, you know, much, much so that's a much healthier field that does kind of observation. But, but what you're really learning about, mostly what you're learning about is, you know, you're learning about, you know, what, what's going on with them, um, how many black holes are out there, what are their general properties. And um, the problem is that you're not really learning at, you're, you're not really learning anything new about, you know, what's the physics happening at, you know, 
at smaller and smaller distance scales. The, the problem is you don't see, it's very hard to get any new information about that that way. You can get lots of information about what's going on in the universe, but, um, and, and part of the problem, so for instance, if you try to do something like Ice Cube, you know, you do have some very, very high energy neutrinos coming and, and, um, and, and colliding in, in the atmosphere or, 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 or maybe, maybe in, the, in the ice or wherever. And, um, and, and you, can look, you can look at the products of that collision. But the problem, the problem there is just that the numbers are very, very small. You know, there, there are some vanishingly small, I don't know, dozens or hundreds of events they have that are up at the energy scale where, where you'd start to get to the LH, it's looking at similar processes in the LHC. And the, the, the problem, the problem with, with, with particle collisions is, is basically um, almost all the time, nothing interesting happens. In some sense, you know, if, if even when you collide two, two particle beams at the LHC, there's this vast, 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 huge amount of, of collisions of stuff going on, but almost all of it is kind of glancing blows of one beam off the other. And it's producing a spray of all this complicated stuff, but it, it, I mean, it's not actually telling us anything new about shorter distances. So the, the LHC detectors are, a lot of their whole design is to find, you know, the one in a trillion or the one in a billion event mm -hmm. where things got close enough to actually interact in a new way and, and to see what happened. Or, you know, they, they dumped enough energy in a small enough place to produce no particle. And, and the problem is if you've only got a few dozen neutrino events at that energy and right. you need, and you're looking for one in a trillion things, it's, just, it's, it's not good. You're talking <laughs> so of the numbers you, that you need. That yeah. So, so do you, I mean, is, is it partly an issue of, um, like back in the day, there was the idea of building the superconducting super collider in the U S and eventually that was scrapped and they built CERN as well. Is there a, is there a gap? Is there a future level of energy that if you could cross it, then you could start to make productive work again? If you, you know, if you could magically generate the kinds of energies that were needed or, or have the containment magnetic containment fields that can handle it? Is there a place where you could pick up and feel like you could be making productive work again in the field? Um, no, I mean, that, that's the problem Our the situation now with the what we've seen at the LHC is that the, the standard model is looking good, you know, arguably to arbitrarily short distances or arbitrarily high energies that we, we just don't see, we don't see any evidence for a new kind of physics that would be at a, you know, some other, some other energy scale. And, and, and even, you know, people talk about even the Planck scale, but I mean, the, the argument that you're going to, that quantum gravity is some phenomenon that you're going to see at the Planck scale is and that that's even that's not so clear. So you, um, yeah, and, and this is I think Sabina's argument that look, you know, you, you guys have no argument for why, you know, you're going to find you're going to find something new, and so why spend the money? And um, so it is a very different than the case with the LHC where where we had a very strong argument that you had to see a, a Higgs or something like it at the center at the, at the LHC. So yeah, so if you um, anyway, but but that that's the fundamental problem that if right. you um, it's it's expensive and we don't you know, we can say that you know if if we do this, I mean I think the positive argument for a new collider is that look you know we, we can maybe if we spend a lot of money there's a we we can kind of go a factor of ten in smaller distance scale over what we know and we can study that it's true we don't have a, a you don't have any reason to 
any assurance that we're going to find something new there, but hey, you know, it's worth continuing to do science and to keep looking. And, um, and you can study the Higgs interactions, the way the Higgs works in, in a lot more detail at a higher energy accelerator. And, um, and the Higgs is also a very, very funny particle. It, it, it's in some sense, most of the things we don't understand about why the theory is the way it is are, have to do with the Higgs. So, <laughs> so, so, but so far, every, everything we've done looking at the Higgs, it looks right. exactly like it was predicted. So. But, but can the LHC do the work that's needed to help us understand the Higgs to the level of sort of clarity that you're talking about or, or is it, I mean, do you, do you want to go it, to that higher? Just as an example of one thing, the, um, one thing you'd like to do is you'd like to ask, you know, how does the Higgs interact with itself? If, if you had two Higgs particles and you try to, how would they scatter off each other? How would the Higgs interact with each other? And so you can try and measure the self-interaction of the Higgs. And that's something the, the LHC with a huge, with all the data it can get may very, very, may make some very, very rough, I don't know, I, I forget the numbers, 20, 30, 40% measurement and you can just barely see that and and, and, and and see if it was there, but not really have anything other than a very rough idea about it. Whereas if you went to a, you know, if you build this some, something 10 times higher the energy, you can maybe measure it to 5% or 10% or something. Right, right. Don't, don't trust me on those numbers. Yeah. But, it's a, but, but, but that's an example of, of this. That, that I think is about probably the most serious case of, of something that we can actually tell you that here's something we would learn by doing that. Right. So, so where then in, you know, I mean, it, it definitely feels like it's starting to border on an existential crisis for particle physicists. When I, you know, when I talk to them, I can definitely feel this, this, not frustration exactly, but kind of disappointment that, that they didn't have a lot of interesting things happen. Like even in, in the world of the cosmologists in the last year or so, um, all of their theories are starting to fall apart and they're really excited about this that you know that that you're you're measuring the expansion rate of the universe with a level of accuracy that that shows that there's some missing pieces in the model that that measurements different measurements just with radiation are 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 turning up to give different answers about the expansion rate of the universe like there's a lot it's a really fertile ground um, now and and the cosmologists were, I think, in a very similar place to where the particle physicists are, and now they're they're giddy with with the opportunity to to look at this. And I always find that so funny when people like there's nothing scientists love better than to find out their 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 ideas are wrong because it's just like so much new fun. New things to think about. Yeah, I mean that's that's really the whole problem with. Part of theory is just theory is too good. We haven't been able, we haven't found anything wrong with it. It's, it's very, very, very frustrating. Yeah. yeah. So then, then where do you think is the fertile ground at this point? Well, I've always, I mean, so my other argument is also partly an argument of the, of the book, and and partly, you know, what I spend my time thinking about. My feeling has always been that, and this is one thing that bothered me about string theory. I thought string theory was just kind of a huge distraction that we had. You know, we have this incredibly successful theory, even more so now than 20 years ago. And uh, so we should, to my mind, you know, we should be focused on, on trying to understand it better and, and, and think about, you know, what are the parts, what are the things that are going on in this theory that, you know, we don't seem to really have a, have a reason why they're there. Or, um, and, and also just, just mathematically, they're just, they're just, in, 
it's true there's some interesting mathematics come out of string theory, but there's also just an incredibly beautiful and incredibly deep mathematics going on in the standard model. And there are these mathematics of, of, of gauge fields, of spinners, of the Dirac equation, and they're just these, there's this kind of striking fact that some of the deepest ideas that mathematicians have turned up with turn up over, over the last century have ended up being, you know, that they're, they're exactly the same thing that physicists found on their own when they were studying, you know, the, the ideas that led up to the standard model. You know, for instance, the, the Dirac equation is a crucial thing in the, um, in the standard model and, and mathematicians who were studying another kind of basic thing about so-called index theory, the relationship between topology and analysis and differential equations, they kind of re they, re they found that there was this kind of crucial object that was a, they played a crucial role in the theory, which, which they constructed and they're very proud of themselves. And then somebody pointed out to them that that's, that's the Dirac operator. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so this thing is, happens time and time again in mathematics. So, so, so to me, there's just a, a huge, there's still a huge amount of opportunity at the interface between new mathematics and, um, and the standard model. You know, it's, we now have been looking at this for long enough that we know that you're not going to find, do something really, really new. With, you're not going to solve the problem of the standard model with some well-known mathematics. It's going to require some new mathematics. But I mean, to me, I, I see plenty of reasons to believe that, you know, what, to the extent that there, there's both kind of new mathematics and, and, and new ideas about the standard model that are there. And this is one thing that I've, I've gotten excited about about recently. This, this twister is one example of the kind of thing I have in mind. But, but it, it's a purely, um, so it, it is possible to, um, uh, wait a second. Hi, uh, are you still there? Yep, yep, yep. Uh, sorry, I, I just got something appeared on my screen. I don't know yep. why. Anyway, um, so it, it, it's possible to make progress on that without having new experimental input. And in some sense, I keep telling physicists, look, you know, if you guys want to figure out how to make progress in particle physics when you don't have new experimental data, you know, go and talk to mathematicians and see what mathematicians do. We've never had experimental data. <laughs> right. So there's a very different kind of culture among mathematicians about how you how you make progress. And um, there's a very different ways of kind of proceeding and, and you know, just a different sociology, a lot of which is based upon the fact that you, you can't rely upon some experimentalists to come in and tell you what the right direction is to go and whether your ideas are right. You really have to yourself come up with new ideas about where to go and yourself be sure that your ideas are actually correct. And this is, this is one reason yeah. why mathematicians are so interested, interested in proofs. It's interesting. I mean, my, my education specifically is in computer science and, you know, we have sort of two flavors of it. One is the mathematician side, the people who are working on the algorithms and the, and the proofs for new methods of computation that may never be run by a computer. Ever. And yet they are sort of trying to explore, you know, P versus NP and, and, and things like that. And then on the other hand, you've got people who are working on, on very practical algorithms that are designed to search and sort and scan and, and to be able to, to run neural networks and so on at, at faster rates. And, and they have this very practical, um, you know, uses in our daily lives. And, and I think that 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 side the the, the purely mathemat mathematics side is a very difficult road like i've always really avoided it um there's the time when i spent doing mathematics 
that I, I really enjoy that process of coming up with a proof, but I still want to be able to look at the, at the answer sheet at the end and go, did I get it right? And yet yeah. when you're in unexplored territory with mathematics, there's no place to go and actually see if you got it right or not. Um, how do you stay motivated? How do you stay? Um, I don't know. It's, it would be really difficult for me. I don't know how, how you, how you and other mathematicians can stay in that space and make progress and not go crazy. <laughs> well, I mean, different, different people enjoy different, different things. I can only speak for myself. And, I, and I've had kind of a, a weird career that I've written very little way of papers. I've just been, and partly I have the strange job here at Columbia and I, um, yeah, so I mean, I've just spent just a lot of my time doing what I enjoy most just because I enjoy it, which is kind of learning about new kinds of mathematics and, and seeing how it possibly fits together with, with ideas about physics. And so I've actually, you know, most people, the way their careers are structured, I think focus much more on becoming experts in some particular kind of kind of calculation or problem and, and stick to that and try and, try and push the, and push this, this one small area further. And a lot of people you know, enjoy it and that's what their career is. Mine has always been just kind of wandering around trying to learn new, new things and convincing myself for a while that, oh, this is a great new idea and I think I can do something new. And then after six months or a year, whatever, realizing, no, actually, it's not such a great idea. It doesn't work for this reason. Um, but it's, uh, anyway, yeah, but, but it's true. You have to really, it, it, it's, a very, it's a very different sort of rewards than kind of having specific results which you can compare to experiment or, mm -hmm. or the real world or, you're, or you can that you're engaged. You can engage with the real world. You're really, um, and, and at least in, 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 in to, to my mind, the, in, because of the problem that, that the physics itself has been very static for the last thirty years, on years. I mean, it, it's the standard model. I mean, that's what I, that's the thing I think about it, and it really hasn't changed much, other than we've found out that there, yes, there is a Higgs, um, but the um, the kind of the different kinds of mathematics you can think about as as being better ways to think about it you know i keep there i, I keep finding you know new, new things which which uh, which look promising and will, which look interesting and um and, and and so so i'm i find i find it uh, myself in a funny position at least personally i, I see many many directions at this point where something where there, there's interesting things to think about and there's interesting kind of things that would involve developing new mathematics and that quite possibly would tell you something new about the standard model but um Getting anyone else interested in them is becoming increasingly difficult because, you know, even the, when, 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 to some extent, to, to a large extent, the people who are doing string theory have kind of abandoned string theory, but they've kind of abandoned string theory without kind of admitting that this was not the right direction. So they, right. they've kind of headed off into to doing other things, but they're still kind of the way they talk and the way they motivate everything and the way they it, it is all kind of based upon acting as if string theory was a good idea that worked and um so i a part of the my kind of well also there's also my blog and my book was partly an, an idea that okay well i'll just explain to people why this doesn't work and then people will drop it and do something more interesting <laughs> right and, how'd that work uh, out for you I, I think i've had some success in getting people to realize well yeah this actually doesn't work but they it's been kind of frustrating. It, it, it has, it's been hard to convince them to, to pursue anything else that I'm interested that I'm interested in that people have kind of right. just kind of pursued the same, they're headed the same direction, which to me was the wrong direction, but they're just, 
they're headed the same direction that they always were and uh, just getting farther and farther away. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of feels like you, you know, you sort of ruined um, String Theory Christmas, but without <laughs> providing an alternative that was really, that people could really hold on to and, and make a lot of progress. And so I think you had a lot of people go, yeah, he's probably right, but what else are you going to do? You know, yeah, no, what else are we going to work on, you know? Yeah, and, and, and I, I'm in this funny position now that just in the last year or so, I, I actually, you know, yes, I, I've been always very aware of that criticism and that, yeah, that it's perfectly valid criticism, but uh, actually now I, I'm actually starting to feel like, wait a minute, I actually have this very specific idea and I'm, you know, I've, I've written a draft of a paper about it, I'm writing some more stuff about it, hopefully it'll be done soon, but it'll, I think I can point to something, but it's, it's very different than what people are used to thinking about and... Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll see. I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, as I understand the stuff better and do a better job of explaining it to, to other people, I'll start to get right slowly get, get some more attention. But it's uh, but it, 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 it's just very different than what people are used to doing. I mean, it, but it does feel like it was a dead end that a lot of people got trapped into for decades. Yeah. And 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 putting on top of that, you've got the. You know, it, it does sound to me like there was an like an institutional academic stream flow that was pushing down towards that cul-de-sac that people were getting caught up in and flowing in the direction of the of this of the string theory cul-de-sac. And now if you were a really self-starter, really clever person, really powerful mathematician, you could go in another direction and people could go, well, we're just going to let you do your thing. But if you were, you know, if you wanted to make progress, that's where the money was. That's where the funding was. That's where the, the connection to some of the, the experiments were, you know, uh, going. And so it was hard to run against the stream. Now, is it hard to go against? I mean, is it, is there still that same current moving in that direction or is that current dissipated at this point? Well, it's different. I mean, the, one of the things that really struck me about the different sociology of physics and of mathematics is, you know, mathematicians much, partly because of this awareness that you don't have experiment telling you what to do. They've always been much more, people have much more of a tendency to spread out that people do not want to all be doing the same thing. And, and, you know, like, if there's some big new theoretical development, you know, somebody has some really good idea or proves some great new theorem, it'll attract some more people to work on that, but not a huge number. And, and there's a lot of uh, respect for the idea that, you know, just because something new is happening over there, you know, to really become expert at it and do something really good it would take years of devoted to it. So, you know, that, that's, that, that's something, it's not like everybody should just go and jump on it and start working on that tomorrow. Physics has always had this different kind of sociology caused by the fact that, you know, that for decades they would turn on a new accelerator and, and you know, these new particles that, you were, that you'd expect would pop out and you'd have all these new measurements of them. And of course, everybody would just drop what they're doing and, and start thinking about that. So it, it's really kind of physicists, in, theoretical physicists are much, much more focused on, you know, what's what's the hot new idea? You know, they'll spend all their time on the archive where they're looking at what are all the new papers and what are the people, what are the top people at top places thinking about what are they doing? And so there's this huge force pushing everybody to kind of 
to, you know, to, 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 to identify something as, okay, this seems to be a new idea. Let's all work on it. And, um, and then, you know, and it's not just that, well, you're going to get more grant money, you're going to get more jobs. It's also, you want to do that because it's, there are going to be other people to talk to about, about what you're doing. If you decide to go on something else that anyone's interested in, you, you've got nobody to talk to. Whereas if you decide to take an interest in this latest, hottest, somewhat faddish topic, then, you know, all Every, but there's all these interesting people to talk to and all this stuff to do. So it, it's those kind of those kind of forces have been going on. And the problem is just for a long time now, they, they've been kind of decoupled from, you know, this experimental impetus, which kind of at least was told you that this is where you got to look. Right. Now it's like people are just doing it because, you know, so, so, anyway, for, for purely kind of sociological reasons. Right. It's, it's I mean, in in the earlier stages of particle physics, it was like there was just like a mystery box of interesting puzzles thrown out on the table every day and people got to pick through them and, and go off and work on them. And, and now there's very few left that are, that, are, that are there that you can actually work on. So what, what advice do you have for people who are maybe starting their career, who are in university or, you know, moving towards becoming a grad student and they're trying to find their place in, I guess, a time of uncertainty of for, for the future of particle physics, where do you think people should should focus their time for to have a long and productive career in this field? Well, I mean, if you're interested in specifically the kind of problems that I'm interested in, I, I often advise students that you should seriously consider, you know, get, getting a math PhD rather than a physics PhD, because you know, it's a, it is a very different culture. You're much more likely to be able to work on, on you know, on, on things which are which are not not so faddish. And um, and anyway, there, there's, there, there, there's I think there's there's an argument for in certain cases for that if people are interested in that. I mean, but if people are not that interested in some of the pure mathematics the way it's done, then you know, then this isn't so good for them. But it's um, yeah, it's very hard. I mean, as as you say, though, I mean, there, there are kind of areas more related to astrophysics or, or, you know, black or gravitational radiation or cosmology. I mean, there are areas of, of you know, of different kinds of fundamental physics, which are much healthier. And, and so the, um, but I, I think this is what you see, what you already see happening. I think a lot of the best young students are not going into this field. They're, you know, they're, they're going into, into these other subjects or they're, um, you know, I mean, all of kind of, you know, quantum between between quantum computers and quantum computation that's there's if you're interested in quantum theory you know a lot of that there's a lot of money and, and and things to do pointing you in that direction so um yeah i i, I i'm afraid that really really what's going to happen in um particle theories if something doesn't change we'll just kind of slowly see that i mean the field will just become kind of it'll remain fairly narrow and um just get a bit get a bit smaller it's hard to say though. The, the, the weird thing is that people in this field kind of keep complaining about, oh, you know, grants have gone down, money is hard to find, and <laughs> and it, it's actually not really true. The um, what's actually been true for the last um, for quite a while is, is there there are a fair number of wealthy people like Jim Simons, and, mm -hmm. um, you know, Zuckerberg and Milner who actually put a bunch of who actually put some serious money on the table. Going, being, you know, at, for a high-profile theoretical physics, and um, you know, so there, there, there's, 
anyway, while NSF grants may be going down, there's other sources of money which have been going up. And um, yeah, yeah. So, so it's it, interesting. It, it, My the problem, the problem isn't really money. It's really, <laughs> It's really kind of intellectual health of a different kind. Yeah. Well, my I mean, my recommendation, people always ask me how, you know, they want to know how to get into the field of astronomy. And my recommendation is get a computer science degree because really telescopes at this point, it's all computer science. Like you're, yeah. you know, you're learning to make a, a telescope is just a big robot and you're programming it. And then it's putting out data that you're then analyzing with compute with other robots. So, um, so all, but then, you know, maybe I'm a little myopic on this, but it feels like all fields are just collapsing into, into computer science. Well, I found, yeah, yeah. I mean, having, anyway, that's, well, ha having those skills is certainly very, very useful. Actually, my original, my PhD in theoretical physics, I was, I was doing Monte Carlo calculations of quantum field theories. That's why I started out. So I also, uh, and, and that kind of background is, has sometimes been useful, but. Um, yeah. Um, but it is very important. So I want to, you know, I know some people watching, I want to get some chance to get some questions from the, from the audience as well. Um, so this question comes from Neil Yu and uh, he wants to know, is there any way to make antimatter more inexpensively to power our future interstellar spacecraft? Cause right now I think it costs like something like $62 trillion a gram to make antimatter in in yeah. particle accelerators. Could we ever build an antimatter factory? Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I don't have any idea. I mean, you know, the fundamental physical problem is that the only way to make antimatter is to, uh, if you don't have any, is to, is to kind of put dump enough energy in one place to pop out a, a matter-antimatter pair and then separate them and, and then somehow can do something. Like that. So that, that's the only way to do it. So you've got to, anyway, so you, you, you've, you've got to dump a, a very, very large amount of of energy in a very small place and then you'll you'll start getting this to happen as well as all sorts of other undesirable things and uh, so it's a very yeah it's a, i don't know somebody may someday have a very clever idea but it's a very very hard thing. so you've really you've got to do those two things of of getting an enormous amount of energy into a small field into a small area and then you've got to be able to keep the particles and antiparticles from reintroducing themselves to each other. If you do those yeah, two yeah. things, your factory but, but, is ready to go. But, but the, yeah, but the main thing, yeah. But it, it, so in some sense, I mean, in our modern theories, you should think of what, um, you know, in some sense, may, maybe one way of thinking about what the way we think about the world now in these theories is that the fundamental thing is the vacuum. There's this vacuum here, but it's, it, it's like, a body of water or something it, it, you, you can bang on it and, and create ripples and, and and particles are just kind of are, are, are kind of ripples in this and so you can you can create particles by by banging hard enough on the um on the vacuum state and um if you bang harder you create more and more particles but but if you want to create particles of a certain mass i mean the problem with it with anti-particles is yeah if you want an anti-proton you've got a it, it has a GeV in mass, so you have to dump two GeV into a specific place so that you can you'll produce because you can't just produce an antiparticle. You can only produce particle-antiparticle pairs because you have to have a conservation right. of charge and everything. So, right. so you have to produce an antiproton and a proton together. So you've got to bang hard enough on the vacuum basically to, to have two GeV worth of energy in you know, 
in something the size of a proton. It's just it's right. really hard to do. But but I mean, just like if you just like went the Elon Musk route from for, first principles, the the lowest possible cost would be to generate a GEV of of energy in a small space. Like if you could like whatever that whatever that price is to do, that would be your, that would be your your absolute bare minimum cost to produce antimatter. Yeah, yeah, and that's um, but but uh, yeah. So I think I mean there are the, the ways people are doing it, and and, and so for instance the um, actually what is it the the previous machine to the the Tevatron the the, uh, the to the LHC the Tevatron at Fermilab that actually collided protons and antiprotons, and so they they actually produced lots and lots of antiprotons by with some other accelerator banging on something and separated them out and then it and then accelerated them and then collided them with the protons, but the um, when they built the LHC, they kind of decided that you know it, it's actually so hard to kind of produce enough antiprotons to make it worthwhile that it, it's better, even though it's even though it's somewhat better to be colliding protons and antiprotons. You get um again you can kind of well there, there are reasons why that's better for the LHC. They decided not to take the trouble to create antiprotons and they just collided protons right. and protons. But it's uh. So this, but it, it, it is a well understood and standard problem among you know, park business. How do you produce antiprotons and how do you make them and how do you? Well, I mean, there's one of these machines in many hospitals. I mean, there's an antimatter factory in the underground of of thousands. I think forty thousand hospitals around the world have, have the ability to produce positrons for their PET scanners. So, I mean, it's just that you're you're only, you don't need many to do the job of of studying a person's health yeah, as yeah. opposed to powering your starship. So but I guess your other problem, the problem with all these also ideas about powering your starship is that the, uh, the whole problem with all these things is you kind of can't, if you're going to use this to generate some power or something, it, <laughs> you're probably putting far, far more power into producing the thing than ever, than anything you're ever going to get out of it. So, oh, well, I mean, it's, I mean, antimatter is a battery. Yeah. Right. It's a it's a compact I, I, energy form, and so it's not a source of energy. It's just a way that you store energy in a compact way, so you don't need to carry around enormous fuel tanks. When you compare okay. the energy stored in antimatter compared to the energy stored in a in a okay, Saturn V, right? Yeah, and you're combining your matter and your antimatter flow. Now this is just starting to sound like Star Trek. Let's move on. Um, uh, A.V. Scott and Flower asks, costs aside, would there be any advantage to building a collider in space? Um, not, 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 not obviously. I mean, the problem is just, the, you know, there, there's this huge amount of infrastructure around these things about, you know, just, yeah, I mean, these, these detectors, it, 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 it's not just a matter of building the yeah, the accelerator, but I mean, anyway, I mean, you have to kind of cool down the magnets, you have to have detectors. It's just, there's just so much stuff you have to do to kind of keep this all operating that you're building all this stuff in space would be really, there's no kind of pretty obvious, you know, there's, there's plenty of room, there's plenty of room here on Earth, actually. Right. <laughs> actually, you know, really, um, I mean, I guess the only thing you could imagine that the, um, in space, you would have a, a vacuum, you know, you wouldn't actually need to maintain the, kind of a vacuum tube for the beam but um well but not even sure that that's true it may be in space there may be so much stuff in space that it wouldn't be enough of a vacuum compared to what the lhc uses 
I mean, I mean the, uh, like when, I mean, there's a couple of atoms per cubic meter, so like, you know, a few dozen atoms per cubic, yeah. per cubic meter, but I'm sure if you're firing your beam, but I guess the, you know, with say the large Hadron Collider or whatever comes after that, that the, it's the magnets and the ability of the magnets to bend the path of the, of the particles. And so theoretically, I guess if you ran a, a ring around the solar system, for example, um, at the Earth's orbit, you could you wouldn't need very powerful magnets to to bend the stream as opposed to having so you could you, know, you see there's a lot of space, but there's not um, an astronomical units worth of space. So yeah. maybe you so could there is, there is that advantage of scale that you know, on, on the Earth, the biggest ring you could you could build would be one around the equator or something. And so but yeah, you, you, you could get something bigger than that by going into space. So, so, you know, blank check, particle accelerator that runs around the equator of the Earth. Would that answer any questions or is it still just too undefined at this point? I mean, yeah, I mean, the, the Sabina's objection still holds that so we don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you can actually figure out the energy. I mean, the energy, you know, with these kind of fixed scale magnets, the... The energy you can get scales linearly with the length of these things. So whatever they're talking about building a hundred kilometer um, machine, and I don't know what the, what's the circumference of the Earth, and it's like forty thousand kilometers. Yeah. So what is so four so four hundred? So okay. So you get a factor of four hundred in in energy, but we don't actually have anything saying that that extra factor of four hundred energy is going to be the right one to, to, to do something new. Right. I mean, but even like if you if you're looking at ten thousand times the amount of energy, of like there's no there's no predicted place. Really yeah, and I really take this as very very strong evidence. I mean, the standard model is is absolutely rock solid. I mean, really, uh, it's it's yeah, relying upon just trying to break trying to break it is really um is a really really hard road to. <laughs> No, so it's better to try to actually understand, to take it, take it apart more, and understand its mathematical structure, and find some, yeah, find find some new ideas about new new ways to new ways to formulate a theory that that give you, you know, to the extent that 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 answer the same questions as the as a standard model in the same way, but may also answer some other new questions. Do you do you think that, for example, things like dark matter, which is sort of a problem that is shared by both particle physicists and astronomers do you think progress will be made more by astronomers or by physicists at this point i think definitely by astronomers because it, it's a um i mean the the evidence for it is really astronomical that, that it's, it's, yeah, it's from astronomical observations we've, we've never done any kind of particle physics lab measurement that would that would show us any evidence for dark matter so it's um it appears our only handle on it is coming from astronomical measurements and, and, and those right by improving those maybe we can get a better idea of what's going on but um, but i wonder like you know like if an astronomer came to you and, and i know this is happening already astronomers are coming going, okay we think that it has this kind of a cross section this kind of a mass can you find a particle that matches these characteristics yeah. are the particle accelerators able to to answer those specific kinds of questions well i mean both 
I mean, the LHC is sensitive to it. It can produce, it can produce if there's a new dark matter particle, you know, so-called WIMP that of a certain, in a certain mass range with certain kinds of couplings, it, 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 it should produce lots of them and you should see them. And the fact that you're not seeing them means they don't exist. There's also other kinds of, um, you know, these, these um, experiments where you put like a huge, you know, kilotons of, of xenon down under the ground and, and, and look for look for something unusual to happen and that that's sensitive to, 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 to a, a different range of um, masses so none of those things have seen anything yeah if you look at just at and my favorite way of looking at things, is just look at this at the if you look at the, at the standard model itself there's kind of one one part of it there, there's in some sense one hole and so in, in, in some sense the um if you look at neutrinos that if, if neutrinos were were completely massless then one way of thinking of that is that you know particles in some sense come in with left-handed and right-handed parts and if you only have a left-handed part and no right-handed part then the particle has to be massless so if neutrinos the simplest version of the standard model before you had neutrinos masses was just to say well, neutrinos are massless because there's no such thing as a right-handed neutrino. So now that we know that um, neutrinos do have a mass, it means you have to have something, something else has to be going on. Either you have to put in some weirder couplings on left-handed neutrinos, some myronic couplings to make them, to make the thing massive, massive, or you have to introduce a right-handed neutrino field. And the problem with the right-handed neutrinos is that they, um, they don't feel any forces except gravitation. They only feel, you know, they, they have charge zero, they have no weak charge, they have no strong couplings. So, you know, they're, they fit beautifully into the standard model. They're, there's a hole right there exactly where they should be. So my guess is there probably are right-handed neutrinos and it's very hard to say much about them because we can't really interact with them in any of the normal ways. Right. But, but it, it's, you know, that these things this this smells a lot like the dark matter is starting to smell in the sense that it, it um a particle which you can't doesn't interact with anything except gravitationally right and, and that so, so there could be some overlap there yeah so there could be i mean it, i think this is something i think particle physicists are, are often are, a lot of them are well aware of but they just don't they, they tend to not like to advertise so well it's because it it's a fairly ugly possibility in the sense that, yeah there yeah there is dark matter it's a yeah. particle we could study it it would tell us about particle physics but you know it, it has no interactions that we can manipulate or produce so we can't actually produce these things or see these things in a lab the only people who are ever going to see them are the astronomers and they're only going to see them gravitationally. yeah yeah um well peter i don't want to take any more of your time uh, i really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today and and clearing this up uh thank you so much uh, if people want to find out more about what you're working on uh where should they go um oh yeah so there's there's the blog I haven't really talked about, that's been very, very active and uh, haven't been doing so much recently, partly because I've been very obsessed with this Twister thing. But um, yeah, so, so not, not even wrong, the blog, I should, I should advertise. And I yep. think there's actually, there's actually by now, um, you know, 16 years of, 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 of material, of all, which I think there are all sorts of interesting things there. If you want something to, yeah, to, I, see, to see what I've been thinking about for the last 16 years, there's a, there's, there's a few thousand posts at this point. I, and and I will be writing more about twisters and Euclidean spinners there in the near future. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I appreciate I've been following your work for, you know, almost decades at this point. And I really 
it's been really helpful to kind of ground me um, in a more scientific approach to the state of particle physics as opposed to the, the science fiction approach, which, you know, I, I know everybody craves. And so, uh, you know, you, Sabina, uh, a lot of the particle physics and even cosmologists and stuff who are who are directly interacting with the public and providing this information in an accessible way is a real service. So thank you from, for me and for, and for our viewers as well. You help sort of cross that bridge between the work that's being done so that the rest of us can understand it. And uh, it's really helpful. So, so don't stop, but I view your thousands <laughs> in at this point. So, you know, I don't think you'll, you'll be able to quit. <laughs> probably, probably, probably not. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. Anyway, it's it's kind of amazed me that I when I started doing it, I thought I would it wouldn't last that long. I'd run out of anything interesting to talk about. But it's it's, it's kind of amazing that it keeps yeah. being interesting. Things keep coming up, which are worth it. Wonderful. Worth, All right. Well, doing. I'll put some links in the, in the show notes. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, and good luck with your new theory and eventually figuring out the theory of everything. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thanks. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye now.